All right, we're going to, uh, we have a special guest today. Uh, my friend Matthew Groves is uh, going to be with us. He's um, studied both physics and religion, has uh, done a lot of work for churches to help them kind of come to terms with questions around science, including climate change, evolution, and things like that. And uh, he's appeared on NPR, done a lot of work on that. So we're, um, it's great to have him with us. He's going to be here uh, this week, and then I think in two weeks from now, and um, so we're really grateful to him, and so go ahead and take it away, Matthew. I forgot to mention my Nobel Prize. That's right. <laughs> whenever, whenever people ask me what, um, what I want them to say during the introduction, I'll just throw in a couple, a couple freebies. Um, I'm glad to be here. Thanks to Micah for making the introductions. Thanks for Jason for inviting me. Um, a little bit about me. I grew up outside of Bristol on the Virginia side, rural Appalachia, Southern Baptist Church. My dad was a deacon, and I was a church kid. And I loved nature because we were right beside the Appalachian Trail. And it kind of sparked my interest in science as a child. It was like we would, I was in Boy Scouts, we spent a lot of time outside. So when I went to college, I loved when I went to college, I loved physics. Physics was the way to make nature make sense to me. So. I had a, a great plan. I was going to spend four years in undergrad and go get a physics PhD and go be a physics professor. And somewhere around junior or senior year, I decided I didn't want to spend the next five years of my life in grad school getting a physics PhD. But I still loved science. So I was trying to decide what to do with myself, and I realized that I might have a good background to help church people and science people get along better. Because I have this shiny new science degree, but I'm also basically a preacher's kid, and I've been taking a lot of religion classes on the side. So I applied to seminaries, and I went to Vanderbilt, and here we are. Um, I'd also like to introduce my wife, Sarah, who's here to answer the really hard questions, <laughs> because she's a PhD student in biology at Vanderbilt. Um, so if you, have any, if you have any really hard questions, I'll just point right to Sarah, and she can take it away. Um, Let's go ahead and hop in. Usually when I do a series on evolution, I like to do a longer series. I do five or six weeks for a couple reasons. Helps me get to know people better. It's a pretty controversial topic, so it's always easier if you know the crowd and the crowd knows you. It also gives me a chance to really lead with scripture. So usually when I teach an evolution class, I do a week on Genesis 1, a week on Genesis 2, and a week on Genesis 3. And we do like a close verse-by-verse -verse reading. And it helps everybody kind of get on the same page and shows you all that I do care about Scripture. Um, but we don't have time for that. So instead of doing a couple weeks on Scripture, a couple weeks on science, a couple weeks on theology, we're going to skip straight to the science um, because we don't really have the time. Um, if... I'm, gl I'm glad that we're in the middle of a longer series over the course of the semester, and I've heard some of your recordings online, so I know you've been talking about Scripture a little bit, which is good as a preface, because it's really hard to talk about evolution. Um, the bad news on evolution is it's easy to start a conversation about evolution and end up talking about anything else. You can end up talking about politics, you can end up talking about science, you can end up talking about like the terrible history of science. You can end up talking about war. You can end up talking about everything. I should start, I should start a list of all the places my conversations about evolution go with people because they go all over the place. So it's hard to keep conversations tight and focused on evolution because it touches on a lot of different things we care about as Christians. So the bad news is there's a lot of baggage on the topic. The good news is I think not all that baggage is fair. Um, if you look at the history of the issue, 
Charles Darwin had his ups and downs with religion, but he's buried in Westminster Abbey, which is like the cathedral in England. And they don't, they don't bury everybody in Westminster Abbey. It's a big deal. Um, you look at Gregor Mendel, who's the father of genetics, and he was a monk, right, his whole, his whole life. One of probably the second most important person in the history of evolution, and he was a, he was a like a cloistered monk his whole life. Um, you look at C.S. Lewis, you look at Billy Graham, you look at St. Augustine, all of them were open to figurative readings of Genesis. And C.S. Lewis and Billy Graham were very open to evolution. So I think it, it helps us to remember that it's not always such a black and white topic, even within Christian circles. Um, let's go ahead and hop in. Make sure this isn't expo. I used a Sharpie one time, and it's very embarrassing. Let's talk about what we're talking about. The theory of evolution by natural selection. Let's take this one piece at a time. If I asked the average American what a theory is, what do you think they'd say? What it is? A theory. A theory. An idea. An idea. Yeah, what are some other synonyms? What? A guess. A guess. Yeah. A hunch, right? Turn on the news and someone says, my theory is such and such. And it means a hunch, right? And it doesn't imply that it's true. <clears throat> If you ask a scientist what a theory is with a capital T, what are they going to say? After much study. After much study. What did you say, ma'am? A probability. Probability, yeah. So this is if you believe in the theory of gravity. Yes, for sure. To a scientist, um, capital T theory, this is, one of, this is an area that's really frustrating because one of the hardest parts about science communication is scientists are really bad at communication. Right? Um, and part of that is because there's so much jargon and so much vocabulary. So this is one of the situations where science communication is hard because if you're in a scientific institution, the word theory means one thing. And if you're talking to a lay audience in like just regular English culture, theory means something else. So if you're in a scientific setting, the word theory um, means there's a structure that explains things that is very well demonstrated. It's not just a hunch in science. In science, it is well demonstrated structure that fits a lot of different observations together. Relativity is a theory in science. Plate tectonics is a theory in science. Gravitation is a theory in science, right? So it's not like our theories true or false, that's a little too simplistic. A theory is a broader framework that fits together a bunch of different observable, testable demonstrations in science. So when a scientist uses the word theory, it means something very different than when we use the word theory, which is just kind of a, a frustration for me. So there's theory. We don't have an eraser. What does evolution mean? Process of change, that's exactly right. So it's possible to talk about evolution in general, right? Like the game of basketball evolved when Steph Curry started taking pull-up jump shots, right? And the game has changed. Change happens all the time, right? The, the stock market evolves. When Apple started making smartphones, the technology industry evolved. Evolution just means change. So I think it's 
I feel bad for the word evolution because it's taken all the weight of the controversy, when really evolution is not, I would argue evolution's not where the bulk of the issue is. So I feel bad for evolution. Um, we're gonna take evolution off the board. Natural selection, I think, is really where the bulk of the issue is. Because the theory of evolution by natural selection is saying that life on Earth changes over time, and those selections are made by nature. That's the pitch, right? Um, so we, we spend a lot of time here, we spend a lot of time here, but I think this is really where the conversation ought to be. Any, any questions to start off with? Yes, sir. Um, does your definition here include the origin of life or just the... Great, great. So it's always important to talk about what we're talking about. And there's a separate conversation to be had in the life sciences about where did life come from. That's called abiogenesis, which actually has a great little church word in it. Genesis, origins, bio, life. Where did life come from on earth? Which is actually a separate conversation. And I'd be glad to have that conversation after class if anybody wants to and send you some resources. Um, but evolution is about change. So like Darwinian evolution that, we, that, we're, that we're talking about assumes the existence of life on Earth, and how does that life change over time? Okay. So where did life come from? That's like a slightly different question that we're not really going to get into this morning, which is, which is important to acknowledge, right? I feel like this one-word evolution deals with the weight of everybody's questions and frustrations with this conversation and that conversation, right? Good question. Another thought somewhere? No? Okay. Let me talk about another common term for just a second that you'll hear in biology, which is called common ancestry or common descent. And I like to use an example from language because everybody's more familiar with language than they are with any other kind of change. Because we know that languages change over time, right? I, I was reading Macbeth in high school as a, as a, a student, and I'm like, oh, this is different English than what I'm used to, right? Shakespeare English is not my English. Languages change over time. So if this is modern English in the USA, what are our close relatives? If we're going to draw a family tree for modern English, what are our close relatives in the family tree? British English, absolutely. We have modern UK English. Australian. Australian, yeah. Um, Australian is Australian closer to us or is it closer to British? British. Closer to British, I would agree. We'll say Australia. <coughs> what else can we throw in there? Canadian. Canadian. Is Canadian closer to us or closer to the UK? Closer to us, right? But it's in between. Canada, right? Were you reading my notes? That's, usually it takes us a couple minutes to get here. Great. I was an English teacher. Oh, there you go. Well, this, you'll, you'll love it. So, Southern. Southern. So, if we wanted to zoom in, right? I'm a, I'm a Southern boy. I, I, I absolutely identify with that. So, if we were to zoom in, right? Let's take modern English in the USA and zoom in a little bit to a, a smaller diagram in the corner. This is me. I'm from Grayson County, Virginia, which is on the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. 
and I have a very specific dialect, right? What would be a close cousin to my dialect? Let's say Bristol, okay? What would be a close cousin to that? Nashville. Uh, yeah, yes, for sure, genetically, and that is my that is my personal history. Let's say Nashville, and then let's say kind of a, a generic East Coast accent. Sorry if anybody's from D.C. I always pick on D.C. because I went to a public school in Virginia and everybody was from D.C. And then what's one step farther removed from us? From D.C.? Boston. Boston, absolutely. I think, I think Boston's probably the end of the spectrum here. So we would call these southern accents, right, on the family tree. We would not call D.C. a southern accent generally. We definitely wouldn't call Boston a southern accent. And if you ask somebody from Boston to make this tree, right, they would put Boston right here. They would maybe even use different neighborhoods in Boston, depending on where they are. And then you get a little farther, and you have you know, Connecticut or whatever, and other New England cities, and then you have New York. And then they would say, is New York an accent like ours, or is it dislike ours? And then they'd have a fight about it, right? And we would say, yes, you're all New England accents. And they would say, no, 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 no. You can't lump us into one category, right? So we're familiar with the topics of common ancestry and how closely related we are. Um, so while we're on the topic, I, um, the, the New York Times has an online thing to check your dialect, and it's unbelievably accurate. So they'll ask you 40 questions in a row, right? What term do you use for this? What term do you use for that? Do you say aunt or aunt for your mom's sister, right? Down the list. And I've actually, my wife is the only person I've ever met who didn't get like a precise location. Like mine, it was unbelievable. It said Johnson City, Winston-Salem, and Roanoke. It was like as close as it could possibly be. So I would encourage everybody to Google it afterwards. It's the New York Times dialect quiz. And I'd be very, t tell me next time we're here if it didn't get you right. I would say, maybe it'll say a city where your parents are from or something like that. Um, so we know that dialect has common ancestry. What would this point on our family tree be? Come back. Divergence. Say again? Divergence. Divergence, yeah. What's the common ancestor of modern British English and modern American English? Yeah, absolutely. We'll go with like pre-colonial English. Sure. What about, actually, the Mayflower would fit really well in like this knot, right? Is the, the colonists in general who came over, right? So we have a, a very close common ancestor with Canadian English, and we have a somewhat farther removed common ancestor from modern British English. What would be even farther away from us on the tree? German. German, absolutely. What would be slightly closer than German? Yeah. You can you, you ask the linguists and they'll say like German or potentially French um, or Spanish would be like slightly farther removed cousins on the family tree. And then you could take this as far as as far as you like. Um, What's it, Romanian or something, right? Some other, some other European language that's not that similar to ours. Would you go back through history and say Latin? Yes, absolutely. So where would, great question, where would Latin be on this map? 
Would Latin be over here? Because it's not a modern language spoken anymore. Latin belongs in the past, probably here, because the Romance languages are derived from Latin. If we took German off the board, Latin would belong right about here, right? That's the history of it. And the, so like, I feel like you made the point, but if you zoom in to the differences in us and Canadian and modern British English, I feel like the differences we're all familiar with, um, let's go, yeah, here. So the similarities um, within all of us is we are obviously closer to Canadian than we are to British English, right? Like we say windshield, trunk, hood, gas, tires, and transmission, and the Brits say windscreen, boot, bonnet, petrol, tires, and gearbox, right? And like as Americans, we, we find that kind of amusing sometimes. And there we go. We move on with our lives. And then, but Canadians are actually different from us and closer to the Brits in other ways, right? The O-U-R, that as you're a kid, you have to learn that in some books, you're going to see the U, because that's how the British do it. That's also how the Canadians do it, right? So the, the point of all this is just that modern American English is a closer relative to Canadian English. Um, and a somewhat more distant version uh, r relative to modern British English, but we all have common ancestor, right? So if we were going, mm, let me hold that thought for a second. Um, now, if we were going to put people on this as like a, a family tree in the proper sense, And I was going to put people here, which is, what's our technical scientific name? Homo sapiens. Yes. Homo sapiens. What would fill out the family tree in these areas? Neanderthal. Neanderthal. Where's Neanderthal go? Pretty close to us, right? Pretty close. That's what I would say as well. I'll throw in another one for there. Neanderthal. Right. What else would we put up there? Homo erectus. Yeah, so there's all the other like extinct human lineages. But actually, <coughs> to clarify, let's make the top of the chart things that are still alive. So Neanderthals are no longer with us. And all the other Homo etc. are no longer with us. Right? So they are close cousins to the human lineage who have gone extinct. Um, what about in this area? I heard somebody say orangutans. Orangutans, great. Let's go with orangutans. Yes, are, are chimps closer or farther from orangutans than us? Closer. Chimps are our closest living relative. So if you take, I was, I was talking to my wife this morning about like how we process DNA. And the difference in my DNA and your DNA is like random white guys. It's like 0.6%, right? So the, the comparison is if, if you take the Bible, how many verses there are in the Bible? 30,000-ish verses. It's like 1,000 verses-ish, right? About how different our DNA is, for example. Like, very similar for 99% of it, but there are differences. You look at chimps, 96% similar DNA, right? So there's, like, there's a real scientific way you can check how related different forms of life on Earth are. Chimps are closer. What would be potentially farther? Gorilla. Gorillas, yeah. 
And gorillas might actually be closer than orangutans, I don't remember. What would be farther along? Lemurs. Lemurs, yeah. And then you get, you get farther and farther and farther, right? So like, what's the most obscure primate you can think of is what the game becomes, right? So lemurs, etc. <laughs> Any high school bio teachers? Nobody? Those are the people who really know the obscure primates. <laughs> but the point here is that humans and chimps have a common ancestor at some point in the family tree, right? That's, that's the pitch, is that at some point in history, humans and chimps had a common ancestor. Now, I really, I see a lot of times the critique of, well, if evolution says that people used to be monkeys, why are there still monkeys around? And that's actually, that's a really good question. And it results in a misconception that evolution doesn't say humans used to be monkeys. Evolution says humans and chimpanzees share a common ancestor in the same way that modern American English and modern British English share a common ancestor. Right? And some common ancestors are closer and some are farther. So this is Canadian. And then this would be British, for example. Okay. That's not the way you spend that when you're sharing it with British people. With, oh, yeah. Like, oh, and then those stupid Americans. They're English. It's like a, a, a diluted version of your own superior tradition. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's funny. I... Let's move on for a second and talk about how the genetics shift over time. Okay? Let's talk about how, going back to the language metaphor, if you were to trace all the little individuals along here, which is millions of years for our last common ancestor with a chimp, um, what would the genetics, what would the DNA of those individuals look like? Um, so... Can anybody, who's a brave soul that is willing to read this? Our fearless leader, how about you give it a shot? I, just, I actually just saw this. It's like John. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> You're demoted. Who's another fearless leader? <laughs> you want to give it a shot, young man? Do your best. I know it's, it's terrible and unreadable. I don't know. I, I have no idea. <laughs> Nobody's willing to give it a shot? I'll try it. Thank you. Okay, so, Dege, Johannes, Gassia, Pom, Highland, to him, Kum, and Do I have to keep going? Oh, yeah. Pergis, Godis, Lam, Pergis, Sepe, Dego, Awig, Midam, Erisim. Right, and so, we got a little hint um, from the beloved leader there that this is something related to scripture, right? And if you squint really hard, you can kind of see it, right? Johannes, John, okay. God's lamb, eh, okay. That, that's about it, right? Like, the proper nouns help us out, and that's about all we have. And some of the letters aren't even English, right? Like, this is a letter we don't have in modern English, right? But, as you get a little bit closer to modern day, and this is, um, excuse me, this is 990s-ish. This is like thousand, a full thousand years ago, the West Saxon Gospels. But as you get just a little bit closer to modern day, you can see the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's from the NIV, right? So this is from John's prologue. And like, you can, if you sat down carefully, you could kind of trace it. Um, but 
if you trace it through the historical translations, it's really fascinating. You can see how it slowly becomes recognizable. So if you look at the Wycliffe Bible, which is famous in like Reformation history, another day June say Jesu coming to him, and he said, Lo, the Lamb of God, lo, he that doeth away the sins of the world, 1390s. And instantly that's already so much more legible, right? You get closer. The, uh, the Tyndale Bible is another like Reformation trivia word. The next day John saw Jesu coming unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. King James, and then like a later edition of the King James, and then the NIV, and here we are. And it's so much more recognizable. So like, I like to lead with language because everybody has an inherent grasp of how language changes over time. Um, are there any questions before we move on? Okay. Good. English teacher, I didn't say anything wrong. Okay, great. Um, but what's this have to do with evolution? So let's look... I'm about to show a clip from a lab at Harvard or MIT. Um, it'll pop up in a second. And what they did was they took a big plate, and they put some bacteria on the sides of the plate, and then they put a bunch of antibiotics in the middle of the plate. And the closer you get to the middle of the plate, the stronger the bacteria, the, excuse me, the stronger the antibiotics are. Right? So the concentration in the middle is extremely high. If you dropped one of the bacteria, it's E. coli, into the middle, it would die straight away, which is the point of antibiotics, right? Um, but you have less concentrated antibiotics near the side, so we're going to watch these bacteria try to force their way into the middle of the big petri dish, okay? And then we're going to talk about their family trees, and that's the connection to the English. So let me make sure the volume's good. Oh, there's the family tree. Sorry. And that a building was basically a petri dish, except that it's two feet by four feet. And the way we set it up is that there are nine, at the base of each of these bands, we put a normal petri dish thick agar with different amounts of antibiotic. On the outside, there's no antibiotic. Just in from that, there barely more than the E. coli can survive. Inside of that, there's 10 times as much, 100 times, and then finally the middle band has 1,000 times as much antibiotic. And then across the porous and thin agar, that bacteria can move around it. The background is black because there's ink in it, and the bacteria appear as white. First, you see the area where there's no antibiotic, up until the point they can no longer survive. Then a mutant appears on the right. It's resistant to the antibiotic. It spreads. Compete with other mutants around it. When these mutants hit the next boundary, they too have to pause at new mutations to make n times as much antibiotic. So, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, the, the video is downloaded. It's not streaming, so I don't know why it's being a little jumpy. But Pause real quick, so we have no antibiotics on the side rings, and so the bacteria grows very quickly through that region. And then it comes up against a barrier, because there's a region of antibiotics, and then a mutation in the bacteria eventually allows one lucky soul to descend into this new region. And because there's no competition, it's doing great. So it eats up all the food and reproduces a lot, until it comes up to another barrier we're about to see. 
you see the difference? Repeat this at 100. And after about 11 days, they fought into 1,000 times as much antibody as the time that survived. And we can see by this process accumulating successive mutations that bacteria, which are sensitive to an antibiotic, can resistance to extremely high concentrations in a short period. So if you've heard people talking about why we need to be a little more careful with how we give out antibiotics, this is exactly why. And it's because E. coli reproduce so quickly that they're able to develop resistance to antibiotics. Right? So if you look at the family tree here in like a, a better vision, um, the first, you can tell which strands um, developed and which ones did not. And if you're wondering how they figured out the DNA of each of the individual pockets, like genetic sequencing is like a really interesting conversation that I'd be glad to have um, afterwards. But we can trace the lineages of each of the winning streams that made it to the middle and see how things worked out for them. So if you look at this one guy right there, got really lucky and made it into the next band before a lot of other people did. And so their descendants branched out and reached the middle before everybody else did, right? But then some other, like, some other descendants didn't make it as far, and some of them made it farther, and then some descendants didn't make it very far at all, right? But if you look at the family tree, it's very similar to what we were looking at earlier about um, English etc. So you start off in blue and you're able to be resistant to 1% um, antibiotics or one-time antibiotics and you're stuck and you're waiting but you're reproducing so quickly that eventually one of your descendants will have the ability just by happenstance through a mutation to handle that level of antibiotics and as soon as they do they make the leap and life is great for them until they hit the next boundary. And this process repeats itself over and over and over until you end up, in just 11 days, getting to a point where a bacteria can survive a thousand times the antibiotics it would have been able to survive just two weeks ago. Which is why health officials care a lot about this as far as the spread of diseases. Um, <coughs> any questions? Yeah, quick um, so the origin is, are the colors just based on resistance, or are they based on actual different genetic sequences? The colors are based on um, resistance generally. Um, so you can tell they're like darker blue on the left, and as you get through more so bands. So you see different branches also end up with orange. It's just based on resistance. They didn't Correct. They have variously had the same mutation that allows them to make it to the next step. Um, and sometimes they didn't even have a common ancestor necessarily. <coughs> They just ended up in the same place because that's where the environment pushed them. Yeah, good question. But you say they're still E. coli bacteria. Yes, to clarify. They are from a different stream as far as like these three um, family fathers go. But yes, they are all E. coli. Yes. E. coli. yes. Good question. Yes, sir. Do you think those changes are dependent mostly on the matrix <coughs> they're growing in? Sorry, one more time, sir. matrix they're growing in? Or is it just something intrinsic to the blue dots and different from the red dot? Yeah, so the red dots are different in the sense that 
they have this resistance now, right? So if you took, if you took one of the blue dots and dropped them into the middle, they'd die instantly, right? Um, I think that they are different in the sense that they reproduce so quickly, they have thousands of generations in these 11 days, and they're able to build up the resistance because they reproduce so quickly. Now they have more time. Like in, in humans, a generation gap is 20 years-ish, right? But for E. coli, generation <coughs> gap is significantly less. Do you actually know what it is off the top of your head? It's a couple hours. E. coli can have an entire generation cycle. So if you have, if you have 10 generations in a day, right, then of those 10 generations that you're going to have day after day after day after day, someone will have a genetic mutation that allows them to be slightly more resistant to the antibiotics. So how does this fit into natural selection? Is, that, is this where you're going? Yeah, this is natural selection in action. Okay. Because nature is selecting which ones will make it and which ones won't. Because, well actually, like people made the nature in this case. But the nature is um, a force on the population, antibiotics, that is like a threat to their survival. And whichever ones happen to have a mutation that let them survive are going to survive, right? Because of course it makes sense that this one um, lineage was able to make it into a new territory and they had way less competition for food and resources and space, etc. So of course they're going to reproduce more. These are good questions. Okay. We, um, there's, there, there are a couple other famous examples from history that I don't quite want to jump into and then have to finish um, haphazardly with them. There's a great example of Darwin's finches, as they're called, on the Galapagos Islands. Um, and when Darwin went on his famous journey on the, the, the HMS Beagle, um, this was one of the catalysts for his thought on these observations, is that you have an island chain, and the birds on this island chain um, have slightly different beaks that make a huge difference on what food they can eat. So, a couple professors from Princeton in the 1980s decided this was an interesting idea, and they started going there every summer and cataloging all the birds on the island for like 40 years. They're, they're still doing it. They're, like, they're older and retired and still doing this. And you can see how if a food, if like, for example, if there's a drought and the food source changes, Whichever birds can eat are the birds that get to reproduce, right? So nature is a force upon the population. And if their natural environment changes, whichever ones are able to eat are the ones that are able to reproduce. That's another example of nature causing an effect on a population. Um, the other famous example is these moths in um, 1800s England. And that's a, a slightly more controversial issue just in the sense that one of the original professors was a little sloppy with his data, so people were fighting for a while over whether or not it was a good observation, and we've now determined that, that someone reproduced his findings with 10 times the number of moths, and it was a good study, uh, but there's a little bit of controversy on the internet about that. I'd be glad to talk about that afterwards if you want to. But we can see in history, um, between moths and finches or bacteria in a labyrinth today, evolution happening, right? So this is natural selection happening in action. Um, I want to shift gears just slightly, because um, this is a, a, a lot of just like classic high school biology science I'm just kind of throwing at you. And 
Next week, I'm going to be gone for Thanksgiving, but the week after, I'm going to come back and we're going to talk about theology and why some of this matters to Christians and things that are challenging or encouraging to us from the life sciences. And I want, I want our posture on science to be one of welcoming. I think as Christians who believe in a creator God, it's important for us to care about creation. Right? If we believe God made the world, then we ought to be extremely concerned with learning all we can about that world. And science is the tool that has been able to give us more knowledge about the natural world than any other tool in society. So as Christians, I strongly believe we ought to be all about everything that science can teach us about the world. Because if you learn about creation, you learn about the creator. Um, and you see this in scripture. Um, if you want to have me back for another series later, I usually spend like three weeks talking about natural theology and theology about nature and how that can teach us about God. Even there's like a lot of Psalms about nature and I really like this bit from Romans. For his, God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What things have been made? What do you think Paul's talking about? Cosmos. Cosmos. Better question is, what things haven't been made? This may be another way to think about that. Everything's been made, right? All of, all of nature. And any, anything you can think of has been made, right? All the trees, all the rocks, all the waterfalls, all the fish, all the birds, all the, all the lemurs and chimpanzees and all of us have all been made by God. We are creations of the Creator. So if we are Christians who care about learning more about God, I think we ought to be interested in learning everything we can about creation, and science tells us about that. Um, so I think one of the things we should take away from science in general is an attitude about nature of curiosity and wonder and mystery and beauty. And kids are actually the best examples of this. Because if, if anybody has children, you know that a toddler is the most natural scientist there ever was. You try and walk a toddler down the street, they want to stop every 10 seconds and pick up something and look at it and, and lick it and examine it and see what, it, what is this, what is this magical thing that's landed in front of me on the sidewalk, right? Kids are curious about everything. Um, and some scientists I like has a, a quote about how the best way to make scientists is to keep children from growing out of being scientists. Um, because science is like fueled by curiosity about nature. And as Christians, we should also be fueled by curiosity about nature that can tell us more about the God who made it. Um, I want to close, so we have time for a couple of questions if anybody wants to hang around. I want to close with this clip that inspired me to become a scientist when I was a little boy um, from the Discovery Channel. And maybe some of you will remember this as well. <laughs> Never gets old, huh? Nope. It kind of makes you want to break into salt. Yep. I love the mountains. I love the clear blue skies. I love big branches. I love when great words fly. I love the whole world. And all its sights and sounds. Boom, be
I think that fundamental attitude towards nature is a curiosity and wonder and enchantment is exactly the attitude that we as Christians ought to be displaying to the world and to each other. And science can help us learn more about that. That's kind of, that's kind of my pitch to us as a church, that that's what we should be about as Christians. Um, I want to I wrap up um, pointing out, has anybody heard of the language of God? Yes. A couple. Good. So Francis Collins, fellow Virginian, very proud, um, was a pretty, pretty uh, committed atheist in grad school as a bio student at the University of Virginia. Um, happened to run into a Methodist pastor who told him he should go read near Christianity, and he became a Christian. And then he became one of the most important geneticists in the world. Um, so he wrote this book, The Language of God, about how his journey from being like an atheist scientist grad student to he's currently in charge of the National Institutes of Health, which effectively runs most of the public funding of scientific medical research in the U.S. Like he was, a, he was an Obama appointee, and he was a reappointed by Trump. So he's like one of the only cabinet members by both administrations to be beloved, and he's an evangelical Christian who's one of the most important genetics people in the world. And so if you have questions about this, I'd really encourage you to go to his website, BioLogos, it's like the Logos and the Cosmos, um, but BioLogos is his website that does you know, like an evangelical take on evolution, and they're very good scientists, and they're very good Christians, which is not always easy to come by people who are both. So that's my recommendation if you have questions in the next week or two before I'm back. And otherwise, I'll hang around, and I'd be glad to talk. Thank you very much.